Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Good morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire, how are you? First podcast of the new year proper for us. Yeah, and welcome back to Open Book. For those of you listening, today marks the opening backup of the office and the start of 2024 for us at Open Book. We are excited about all this year will hold for us. Although if you were really on your podcast dropped, you will have had the sneaky extra bonus podcast that we issued on the 1st of January. So if you missed that, you can go back and catch up with it and you'll get the link to that on our website or on SoundCloud or any of the other major platforms for podcasts. Yeah, we thought it was a good month to put out too because... As is always the way, you know, in a new year, lots of the groups haven't been meeting for the last week and in fact the last couple of weeks over the holidays. So we thought we'd give you an extra just in case you felt like being part of Claire and my personal little group. You can listen along and as Claire says, there's an extra in there if you want to go back and listen to it too. But now we're looking forward to the year coming and all that Open Book has in store for ourselves and you out there, all of our groups will be running as usual from now. And I think we have lots of exciting plans for this coming year, although I don't know that we should talk about them yet. But stay tuned to see what we've got up our sleeves. Exactly. Our first theme of the new year is machines, which I'm quite excited about. But I would really like a machine that would just tidy up my house at the moment. There's still a fair amount of detritus from the holidays of and having three teenagers hanging around all the time so that would be my ideal machine if something could just come in and scoop up all the hoodies that are dropped at the front door and odd shoes that are lying around and plates with crumbs on that haven't quite made it to the sink so that would be my ideal machine at the moment as they go back to school and university i am sure in a week's time i'll be missing them and i'll be longing for the quiet and the mess well i'll be longing for the noise and the mess to be back i will remind you that you said that claire that you'll be longing for the noise because i'm not sure i'll be longing for the noise Shall we crack in? Our um, story today is called Engine Oil and it has been written by one of our lead readers, Ruth Gilchrist, who um, runs our Dunbar shared reading group and our Eye Mouth creative writing group. So thanks to Ruth for giving us her story to use today. She knew from looking at the back of his neck that he smelt of oil, that his shoulders ached from manual work that the fabric of his shirt would be stiff with a mix of grease and sweat. For a moment, Beth closed her eyes, imagined opening those buttons one by one, imagined absorbing his heat, his rough, filthy fingers on her skin, inhaling that most delicious smell and drowning in his abdominal muscles. Beth opened her eyes and her heart dropped to the floor of the bus. He had turned and she was caught in two dark eyes. He was saying something, but she was so deep in her daydreams she couldn't hear. A woman across the aisle lifted her arm to ring the bell and Beth floundered to the surface. I'm sorry, she said, her voice sounding rather too loud in her head. I didn't catch what you said. Are you all right? He tried again. Only you were, you seem to be sniffing and you seem, well, a bit, well, are you all right? he repeated, not knowing quite how to word her strange behaviour. Oh, I'm sorry, she replied with an embarrassed frown. It was a smell. Oh God, I don't mean you, you don't smell bad. It's just... 
and then desperate not to lose his attention by offending him any more, she asked, what have you been fixing? Either side of Dan's mouth pulled down in an exaggerated grimace. I've been fixing my car. It's a... He could have said it was a four-wheel drive donkey for all she knew about makes of car. But it didn't matter anyway. She just enjoyed watching his body animate as he talked. He was obviously passionate about motors. Oh, she wished she could die right now and come back as a car engine just to have him talk about her like that. It may have been the cloudy look in her eye, but something outside the bus caught his attention and he recognised his stop. That was it. He was gone. No phone number. Just a lingering smell of engine oil. Will we stop there? Yeah. This brings to mind the number of times you're kind of lost. Like before we get into what she was actually thinking, <laughs> this brings to mind the number of times you're kind of something triggers a memory and you're kind of slightly lost in a memory or in a sensation and then someone tries to draw you out of it and that kind of almost bewilderment, you're suddenly required to say something or required to be present when you're off in a dream. It doesn't happen to me that often. I don't know if it does to you, but when it does, it's really... I find it really hard to come back in a way. Yeah, you sort of, you feel yanked back almost rather than floating back. But I think it's it's particularly um, amplified or magnified in this one because the subject of the thing that had distracted her was the thing that was pulling her back. Yeah, exactly. And I do recognise that not being sure what to say, fumbling, you know, and saying the wrong thing just in order to fill the space, you know, because I love it when she says it's the smell and then... Of course, then she realises what she's saying and thinks he could be offended. Yeah, and it, it sort of reminds me a bit of that um, when I was working in law and, and taking witness statements and trying to get information about particular events. And you were always told not to fill that space because inevitably the witness would then give you more information than they had been going to. So just to let that silence sit and that, you know, that sense of uh, feeling the need to fill the silence comes across really well in that it was a smell, little freeze, doesn't it? It's funny because I was thinking, as you said that, that, you know, I think socially we are kind of required to fill those spaces, um, or at least I was certainly trained to, as a little girl, you know, kind of keep conversation going and not let silences sit. And yet at Open Book, I think a lot of the most powerful things come from holding a quiet space and letting people think about what they've just heard and formulate opinions. And we're often asking lead readers, and, and you all can let us know what you think about this out there, but hold that space open for people to just in a way that feels a little bit maybe more comfortable than it obviously felt here. But I never really thought about that as a contrast to the way that we sort of socially are expected to fill spaces, fill time, particularly, I guess, if you're asked a question, you wouldn't take a moment um, to think about the answer. If it's something as simple as, are you okay? I remember someone saying to me once, it's okay to say, let me think about that as a way of buying yourself some time to think about things. So I'm curious that in law, and of course, you know, I was trained the same when I was doing moot court work or that part of my training was told to, to leave the space open, as you say, because often I guess it's the witness that feels like they have to fill it. And I, I mean, I've heard you when you before you've gone on on stage to cheer authors and maybe the author's been a little bit nervous or particularly nervous about the part of the event where there is questions. You know, a lot of authors are really confident and comfortable 
in reading their work because they know it so well, it's there on the page and it is a matter of just reading it, but they become a bit more anxious or nervous around the idea of being asked questions that they might not have anticipated or questions coming from the audience. And I've, I've you know, often heard you say as way of reassurance, it's okay to say, let me just think about that. Or even, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, or just being confident saying, I don't feel comfortable answering that question because, you know, it's, it's astonishing what people will ask you when you're in front of a microphone and things that are inappropriate or things that you don't feel like sharing. You know, I think part of the problem in a public forum is often people feel that they're obliged to answer whatever people ask. And, you know, the reality is that they're there to talk about their work, not explain their relationship with their grandfather, unless, of course, it's a memoir and it's covered in the book, or to particularly to divulge anything more than what they've written. Now, of course, that's often as an audience member what we get so much from is to understand more about what happened around a book or the making of it anyway, or possibly what was left out of it. But yeah, I think once you put a microphone in front of someone, authors can often feel in that same way that we've been talking about, obliged to fill the space. And I guess part of the role of a chair is to be the, be the person who fills it so that the author isn't required to jump in and do something they don't feel comfortable with. But yeah, that idea of saying, let me think about that. And sometimes you could even say, let me think about that and come back to you and let's take another question while I mull that over is a really good trick because often you don't know what you want to say, um, particularly if the chair has done their job and not given you the questions ahead of time so they feel fresh. But here it's a different scenario, isn't it? It's like, um, and, the, and the trick there, of course, is that Beth is thinking exactly about some this person. <laughs> and as you were reading it, I was thinking, not to be controversial, but like if we were to flip the genders in this story, would we be okay with it? Yeah, no, I, I was, I was thinking the same thing. I was going to, br- I was going to bring that up and just say that objectification, because that's effectively what she's doing, isn't it? Is that, is it different because it's Beth that's doing it and not Dan? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not a story we would want to read, particularly if it was the other way around. And it kind of, it challenged my own assumptions. I think listening to you read that first paragraph again about why it's okay to understand what this, what Beth is doing when it would not be okay with me to hear that in a man's voice as it were. But then I would, you know, the, the contrast to that is attraction works, right? Attraction exists, whatever the gender of the individual. And so, you know, part of the writing of it is articulating the truth about how chemistry works and attraction works. And for me, it seems partly about smell, you know, and, and and I think we don't talk about that or certainly don't write about it very much in terms of its part in the role of attraction. So partly I think it's just articulating an honesty here. And because it's not said out loud, we as readers have that uncomfortable position of knowing something that he doesn't. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm un, unclear how I feel about it. The, the bit that I'm sort of less comfortable with is abdominal muscles, because I think you probably, if people, if people are normally dressed yeah, how does she know my- what is abdominal <laughs> muscles are like? You certainly wouldn't know what mine were like from. <laughs> exactly. So I think either she's looked really carefully or she's imagining, in which case it's kind of better somehow. Mm, but yeah, there is a there is a discomfort there. And I think she probably realizes it in her response because she's so slow to respond and so uncomfortable in her response that I suspect there's a part of her that understands you know, the sort of discomfort or perhaps what she was doing wasn't exactly right, maybe, or certainly inappropriate. I'm not sure. Or maybe she's she's doing that exercise of flipping the genders and thinking if he was thinking that about me, that wouldn't be okay. So I'm slightly embarrassed to be thinking about him. Because she does have an embarrassed frown. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the truth is we're humans and we, you know, as humans, we understand if you look at the internet for 30 seconds that we all fantasize about something. So yeah, part of the way that Ruth's drafted it makes me more comfortable because it feels about her experience and less about his body shape because we don't really know much about him except that he's obviously covered in engine oil and smells of engines. And that's something in itself, isn't it? That sort of power of smell and the evocation you get of smell and the way smell for me certainly is is the most powerful of the memory invoking set of the most powerful of the senses in terms of invoking memory yeah exactly and maybe also it's an interesting reflection on what causes attraction because it's one thing for her and it might be something completely different for someone else but it's the curiosity for the reader is that it's not necessarily what everyone would see as attractive. Certainly someone not washed up from a hard day's labor isn't necessarily what It's not ticking would... my boxes. <laughs> well, it's just not necessarily what the world presents as attractive, you know, in a kind of pin-up poster style thing. So that's interesting too for me. I mean, I don't know whether I would find this person attractive because I think the triggers for me would be something completely different and I probably haven't stopped to think about them and won't right here and now. But, you know, it's what's curious to me is that it's not what we expect. And presumably it's not necessarily what she expects because it comes and hits her slightly out of the blue, which is, you know, why I think it's interesting. And then it's always, it's completely internalized as fantasy must be before we're asked to bring ourselves back into the real world. So either she's embarrassed or she's so engrossed that she's having a hard time coming out of it and then finds herself, you know, stammering, which is, I think, a completely normal response when you're deep in thought, particularly about the person that's now asking you a question. And then it's over. He's gone. She's not exchanged a phone number and you know, the, the incident's over and, and presumably that's that's it. That's our little um, thinking, fantasizing on the bus for a couple of minutes in the morning and then her day continues. Yeah, I used to wonder when I lived in New York City whether people would have like train romances, you know. And I always thought it was such a fun idea to have like a, you know, seven minute train romance, you know, where you could like get to know someone, whatever, and then get off the train and that's it. Because in a city the size of New York City, you're never going to see that or rarely see the same person again unless they got on at your stop. Um, and we used to think it would be such a funny little thing to do to kind of, obviously when I was single, um, <laughs> you know, like meet someone, chat them up and then get off. And, and it would just bring a little bit of something to your day, you know, to think, who could I meet today? Anyway, I never did it, safe to say, but I'm encouraging you, all of you out there to have your little public transport romances, even if they're bromances or platonic friendships. I think it's a fun idea to reach out to the world in this way. Shall we read on and see yeah, what happens? Because well, there is more of this story. It doesn't just end there. Well, it might, but we'll see. I mean, let me read the last bit. Beth boarded the bus. She had been fixing her own car and needed to pick up a part. She ignored the disapproving glare of the old woman across the aisle. In the last three years, she'd grown accustomed to the different reactions of people looking at her in her overalls. Beth never minded the grime on her face, and she certainly didn't notice the oily smell these days. Settling back on the seat, she raised a greasy hand to massage her stiff shoulders. She reflected that although it was tough on the neck leaning over an engine, it was good for the soul. Her parents had been glad that she'd finally made a career decision, but were skeptical about her choice. Beth knew her parents thought she was a bit of a dreamer, 
but she'd prove them wrong on this one. Now she was nearly a fully qualified mechanic. A movement behind her halted Beth's thoughts. Someone was breathing, no, inhaling at her neck. She tried to keep a look of outrage as she turned, but was caught in the two oily pools of his eyes. This time she was ready. This time she was listening. Well, I love the word outrage in that part. (laughs) And how long after do we think this is? After the first incident? Uh, well, three years, it sounds like, in the last three years. So she's she's changed careers, and it sounds like it's been a few years anyway. But she's not changed her love of the smell of oil. No, and it kind of helps um, soften, I think, that first paragraph in the first half, because you know, if, if part of the attraction was a sort of unrealized wish to smell like oil herself, as it were, or at least have a job that allowed her to work on engines and do the thing that she really wanted to do, then it makes sense that her part of her attraction was about having what she couldn't have or being closer to the things she couldn't have. Exactly. I I like her more. I respect her more having read the second bit than I was slightly annoyed with her in the first bit. And I was laughing thinking what my parents might have said if I'd said I wanted to be a car mechanic. I'm not sure they would have uh, been pleased, but... You know, I think the reality is you've got to do what you really want to do in life without regard to what other people ask you to do. And my mum often says that when I was 21, I wanted to get a PhD in poetry and uh, they were really against that idea. I remember my father asking me how I was planning to eat and buy groceries on the back of a PhD in poetry, which is a funny thing to say. Um, And now my parents say, well, look, it's taken you a long time, but you got back around to it. Now, I don't have a PhD in poetry, but at least my life is largely circling around poetry, which is um, which is a real gift, isn't it? I have to say, though, being a mechanic is um, on a day to day basis is in some ways a lot more useful than being a lawyer or a poet (laughs) or or a poet for that matter. (laughs) (laughs) And probably steadier because people's cars will keep breaking. Whereas nobody needs, well, I think the world needs poems, but it's not in the same kind of way. Yeah. Um, You know, I remember my parents telling me that a law degree was an insurance policy, but I bet I'm pretty sure that a qualification in mechanics, car mechanics is is a much better insurance policy. Um, Or plumbing. (laughs) Or, you know, joinery, being able to fix things. I remember saying to my kids, do something where you can fix things because actually the world always needs people who can fix things. Whereas, you know, the rest of us are probably going to get taken over by other things. So sadly, none of my kids appear to be doing anything that requires them to fix things. But um, there's hope in the last, you never last one, you never know. And, you know, you never know what they'll come to. Yeah, exactly. If they follow you finding your way back to poetry via law, they might end up finding their way to gas boiler installation. I hope that um, there's been more space for them to think about what they'd like to do or what they'd enjoy um, than, you know, is often the case in kind of migrant families where there are really only a few options available um, to secure the safety of the next generation. So hopefully those times are coming to an end. But sadly, in talking to friends who have experiences like mine, I'm not sure they are. But yeah, I'd love to get on a bus covered in oil and see what happens, especially in Edinburgh. (laughs) I wonder what people would make of it. And it'd be interesting to see what different looks you got as you pass through 
Morningside or the Stockbridge or some of the kind of areas of town that might have older particip- or older bus riders who might look down on the smell of engine oil in their bus. Shall we move on to the poem? So this is a Walt Whitman poem today, an older poet. I think in the last couple of podcasts we've been reading the work of more contemporary um, writers, but um, going back, going back a bit uh, today, and it's called To a Locomotive in Winter. Thee for my recitative, thee in the driving storm, even as now, the snow, the winter day declining, thee in thy panoply, thy measured jewel throbbing and thy beat convulsive, thy black cylindric body, golden brass and silvery steel, thy ponderous sidebars, parallel and connecting rods, gyrating, shuttling at thy sides, thy metrical, now swelling pant and roar, now tapering in the distance, thy great protruding headlight fixed in front, thy long pale floating vapour pennants tinged with delicate purple, the dense and murky clouds outbelching from thy smokestack, thy knitted frame, thy springs and valves, the tremulous twinkle of thy wheels, thy train of cars behind, obedient, merrily following, through gale or calm, now swift, now slack, yet steadily careering, type of the modern emblem of motion and power, pulse of the continent. For once come serve the muse and merge in verse, even as here I see thee, with storm and buffeting gusts of wind and falling snow, by day thy warning ringing bell to sound its notes, by night thy silent signal lamps to swing. Fierce-throated beauty, roll through my chant with all thy lawless music, thy swinging lamps at night, thy madly whistled laughter, echoing, rumbling like an earthquake, rousing all, law of thyself complete, thine own track firmly holding, no sweetness debonair of tearful harp or glib piano thine, thy trills of shrieks by rocks and hills returned, launched o'er the prairies wide, across the lakes, to the free skies unpent, and glad and strong. It really makes you nostalgic for the old locomotives, doesn't it? Or the sounds and the kind of spectacle of them. Yeah, and I mean, it's really lyrical and rhythmical to read. Mm -hmm. Which is lovely because, of course, that is a sound an old locomotive makes, that kind of chugging, recitative sound um, that it starts with. Which, you know, I think with the with that word in the first line, it puts that idea in your head that the locomotive is making some kind of a recitation, you know, is declaring itself on, you know, the, the prairies and the lands that are coming. And even the swinging of the lights and the signals feels like part of an orchestra or a, or a you know, a piece for a many instrumented, you know, collective of some kind which is of course the train and there are so many sort of sound words or or words that make you think of sounds within the poem that you you really do get that sort of almost 
layering um, of different noises and, as you say, sort of orchestra-type feeling of um, of different parts of the machine making different noises and and the the writer hearing them at different times as as he listens to different parts of of the the sound or focuses in on different parts of the sound. And even like even the lines that don't do, have to do with sound, like the golden brass and silvery steel sounds like an orchestra to me. It's almost like a conductor bringing in each part, including the natural world when we've got a gale or snow or whatever it is, you know, storms and buffeting winds. It sounds like, it feels like Whitman is the conductor and is telling us about all this sound and underlying it. The locomotive is almost, for me, almost like the percussion that's driving the sound in a way. Um, yeah, it makes me really, it, it, it builds in a way that a piece might or, or a, a song might or, you know, it kind of builds in my mind as this sort of incredible thing. And yet it all works beautifully together. It doesn't, it doesn't clash. It doesn't feel contrasting. It feels like it just, you're just bringing in a new sound almost with every line. And yeah, and I think as well, the language, some of the words, you know, the that you picked out silvery steel and golden brass and there's connecting rods and sidebars for me for me those are reminiscent of instruments you know I was thinking trombones and you know and and I suppose there is a visual connection in certainly in my mind between the sort of the side of a locomotive and all the pipes that go along and that sort of vision of a trombone or a tuba or a horn of some sort you know and in case we missed it of course you know in the second stanza we get roll through my chant with all thy lawless music, you know? So in case you haven't gotten it to this point, I'm talking about music. I'm talking about sound here. And it's interesting that it's winter because I think too, in my mind, even before we'd gotten to the poem, the train is black and it's rolling through snow. That's the image that came to my mind. But of course, snow has this sort of dampening effect, you know? Um, so everything is sort of, stands incredibly proud against it or sort of, because it dampens down the sound of so much else around it. I remember in living in the city and how quiet it would be on snow days because the usual sounds just didn't reverberate off buildings. So it's almost like bringing each one sharply into focus in a way that it might have blended into the world in a different way. And I, I think that's that's emphasized as well um, by the fact we're in winter and you know we don't have leaves on the trees and we don't have you know, growth on the ground and, and there's no distractions in the landscape from the train, the black train passing through. It, it's, as you said, really stark, stands out in full relief from the background. So, you know, the locomotive is really the focus of what we're being asked to think about. It's funny because when I was in the States last October, um, I needed to pick someone up from a train station. And one of the things that I'd forgotten about, um, and, and it isn't true here in Britain, is the sound that the train makes. You know, the Amtrak, which is a modern train um, in, in California anyway, that the horn on it as it's driving through, especially at night, is a chord. It's three sounds together. Um, and it's a beautiful chord, or at least it is in my mind. And often in flat places across plains or even where my parents live, which um, is up on a hill above a plain, you can hear that chord as the train passes through in the night. 
presumably as it approaches crossroads or cross sections or whatever. But um, so even the sound of it is still something that people think about in the States as the sound of a train, not that chugging of a load of locomotive necessarily, but there's still sound attached to the idea of a train, which I think is really interesting. And I'm not sure is true here in Britain. I'm not sure we think of sounds. Although, you know, the, the language for a train for a young child in Britain would be choo-choo. That's true. I was thinking too, maybe like the ping-pong of the doors shutting is maybe more, if I had to, if I had to, if I had to say what a train sounded, sounded like now for me as an adult, it would probably be the ding-dong, you know, kind of, or the funny noise that it makes now, which is like ding, 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 when the doors are shutting or, um, Sorry, I can't really sing it to you, and none of you would want me to, but you'll be able to hear it for yourselves in your head now, too, if you've ever taken a train. But yeah, I think looking back to Whitman when the locomotive was like, you know, was fresh and new in terms of like this luxurious, incredible thing, way to travel and and also an incredible way to move goods, right? Um, they didn't really, you know, it was new for them and and miraculous really so it was something to behold it still is something to behold um but back then it was like you know a flying car you know remarkable um and the way that it would change the world so it's not a wonder he's written this almost ode to a locomotive in winter i would say um, and put it into one sense so that we can hear it coming which is a beautiful thing I think that's us for today. Thank you for being with us again in this January podcast and we look forward to sharing more podcasts with you later in the year. 